Hey folks, welcome to our Wednesday night equip. We're glad that you are here. If you're in the room with us, thank you for joining us in person. If you are joining us online right now, live through one of our streaming platforms, uh, or are watching this or podcasting this later, uh, we are grateful that you are here with us uh, as we talk about developing a biblical worldview again uh, tonight. In a few minutes, I'll introduce our subject because we're really going to make a shift in uh, what we've been talking about, and this is kind of at the midway point of our series here, but I want to open us in prayer if I could do that. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you uh, love us and for the goodness and grace that you have shown uh, to each of us and your son, Jesus, that he gave himself uh, for us so that we may have life in you. Let us uh, keep that thought at the forefront of our mind today. Um, as, as we view everything through that lens of the gospel, uh, that if it weren't for Christ's work in our lives, uh, we too uh, would still be dead in our trespasses and sin. Allow that to soften our hearts towards people. Uh, allow that truth, God, uh, to remind us of the humility uh, that we should all have as we uh, also put on the mind of Christ uh, and we seek to glorify you and exalt him in all that we say and do. Would you bless us tonight and bless our time and your word? Uh, help us to think about a difficult subject um, and, and one that can become so highly charged in people's minds. Um, and so, God, would you help me to uh, have, have good words, use words carefully, say uh, things well, while also recognizing that your, your word has spoken to us uh, clearly on this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if this may be your first time to be with us in person or online, since the beginning of January, we've been talking about what does it mean to have a biblical worldview. And the first half of this, as I said in the intro, the, this was kind of a transition week for us in this series at the halfway point. Um, the first half of this, uh, we really defined a lot of terms. We thought, what does it really mean for a person to... Um, have a biblical worldview? What is a worldview? What are the dominant worldviews, not only in our own culture, but in the uh, world? Uh, we answered questions like, is absolute truth a real thing? And where can we find absolute truth? Because that is a definitive claim of a right biblical worldview, is that truth exists. Um, and so we, we sought to uh, define that. And then last week, we um, or two weeks ago, we looked at at the relationship of the church and culture, which is sort of a broad, big picture understanding of uh, competing worldviews, the competing worldview of the gospel and the church uh, as understood from scripture, uh, and then how the church has, has at times um, sought to transform the culture around them, sought to escape the culture around them, uh, sought to be separate, recognizing that that secular is secular and religious is religion. And, and we said, well, you know, there's probably things we can learn from all of those uh, hi historic uh, positions. So what we're doing now is making a transition into uh, specific uh, subjects that the Bible has clearly spoken on. And, and um, we actually ended that kind of that first half of this series last week talking about personal conviction and the difference between this is something that I'm personally convicted over uh, and this is something that we should all share together as a biblical conviction. Uh, if, if you'll remember and thinking about what is, what is sin uh, as far as uh, disobeying or disbelieving um, what God has said and what God has commanded for us to do versus being convinced in our own hearts about certain things uh, and, and trying, to draw, um, trying to draw right understanding there. Well, now, from now until uh, the week before Easter when we'll finish the series, we're going to take uh, one or more subjects a week. This week, I'm really just dealing with one uh, subject, uh, but I'll take one or more subjects a week that, that are culturally significant topics that what I hope to be able to do is um, really uh, threefold. I, I want to address where we are as a, as a culture as it relates to this topic. 
want to ask, what does the Bible say uh, about this? And really that part's too, but what does the Bible say and how does the gospel influence our view of that, uh, of this subject? And then, and then ultimately, what's the church's responsibility, both me as an individual member of the church and us corporately, what should we do then um, as we, if you'll think back again to two weeks ago, as we, as we think about, is this a way, an area that we should be seeking to transform our culture? Is this an area that we should just separate from our culture over? Uh, what, what should we really be seeking to do as a church, as, as we uh, look to influence people around us and our society uh, with the gospel and speaking truth in love to people from a biblical worldview? And so I just thought, you know, none of these are really going to be, uh, they're all going to be culturally relevant. I'm not picking something that was relevant 150 years ago that's no longer relevant today. I mean, we're, you're in this because we're, we're thinking about how do we live today in this world that we live in. And, and so I'm, I've tried to think through what, what are some of the more significant cultural questions of our day, things that you may be uh, trying to form your own biblical worldview over, and certainly things you're having discussions with other people, particularly lost people, about. Um, and, um, and so I, I want to be able to help you. So I, I'm, I, I picked, I think, what may in some ways be low-hanging fruit, uh, but in another way, is definitely a, a, a divisive hot button issue for our uh, culture. And this is the issue of life, uh, particularly as it relates to abortion. Abortion is not going to be the only a subject today, um, but it is certainly going to be one uh, that we're going to um, that we're going to deal with. So we're we're talking about biblical worldview concerning life. Now, if you've taken Connect class, our our new member class. Um, since I've been here, so almost six years now, um, I, I make a statement nearly every single month in that class uh, when we're talking about our core values. And one of our core values is we'll show um, God's love to all people at all times while giving special support to the orphan, the widow, and the unborn. And I take that as an opportunity to say this, we are unapologetically a pro-life church. It, it would be difficult for you to have come here, for instance, over the last month and not walk away from here recognizing that we are a pro-life church. Crisis, we had people from the Crisis Pregnancy Center speaking in our uh, worship service a few weeks ago. We were putting a team together to work with the Crisis Pregnancy Center. We were raising funds through the baby bottle campaign for the Crisis Pregnancy Center. It's very clear, I think, congregationally uh, where we stand on this subject, which is why I think it is somewhat uh, low-hanging fruit for us. Some of the future weeks are going to be a little more challenging, maybe even personally for uh, some of us in here. But likely, if you come to this church and you stay for any length of time, not only do you recognize we're a pro-life church, but if, if that wasn't your opinion, if that wasn't kind of where you landed, I, I would really question what, how long would you, what would your longevity be as a part of our congregation? Because, well, I don't preach on abortion all the time. Like it's not, um, it, it, it's not a, it's not a subject that comes up in scripture all the time. It's a subject that we deal with when the scripture deals with life. And we'll see some of those passages, uh, today. I don't get on soapboxes and preach about certain things a few times a year. Um, but it is ingrained in the DNA of our, uh, of our church, which is why it's one of our core values that we'll give special support to the unborn. And we do that through, uh, primarily through the Crisis Pregnancy Center and in, and in some other ways. So um, th this is something that's important for us here. But as far as public opinion goes, as far as the trajectory of our culture, we're losing this battle. And, and we need to recognize that we're, we're losing this, uh, this battle. Um, now, it, you know, statistics uh, can be used by anybody to prove anything, Right. Um, and I, I really shy away from statistics a lot. And if you listen to people quoting statistics about abortion, uh, one of the things you'll notice is uh, both sides can use the same statistic to prove the same, you know, to prove their, their point. For instance, over the last, uh, at least for the last seven years, maybe eight years now, uh, abortion has been on the decline in the United States. That there were less abortions um, now than there were a year ago. And that, that's happened every year for, I think, the last seven or eight years. It'll be really interesting to see once we get the pandemic numbers to see if that's 
still the case or not, because oftentimes uh, economic crises and whatever will drive abortions up. Um, and that's actually something that happened in 2008 and 2009. And we've kind of been coming down uh, since around 2012 or so with statistics. And so there are people on the pro-choice side that say, see, look, we, we still have abortion in America, but it's coming down because some of these other things that we're doing are, are working. And we look at that and, and look at the work of things like crisis pregnancy centers all over the country that churches like ours support, like ours here in Tidewater. And we say, yeah, it, it's, a lot of it is due, to, is due to this work and other work like those uh, who, who are fighting it. So I, what I'm not going to do is look, try to give you a whole bunch of little you know, ammunition and statistics and 50% of this or 60% of Americans believe this or 30% of Americans believe that. And, and we'll see that with each one of these things that we deal with. I'm not, I'm not interested in all in opinion polls. It doesn't matter to me if 99% of Americans think abortion should be legal up until um, birth. That, that doesn't concern me whatsoever. What concerns me is what, what does the word of God say? Now, the higher that number goes, obviously it's not 99%, but the higher that number goes, the more we become in the minority, the more difficult it's going to become, um, the more necessary it's going to become for us to speak truth about certain things in love within our culture, um, and, and the harder the fight's going to be. And I think that's what we're seeing now. I think what we're seeing now as it relates to the issue of life is um, the more and more of our culture are embracing uh, abortion as a commonplace medical procedure that is just a reality in people's lives and one that uh, nobody has the right to say whether someone should have. So if that's where we are, some of you knew that I was going to do this. I'll do this probably every week. We got to ask this question. How do we get here? I, I get really fascinated by history sometimes. And so I'm going to just briefly deal with this. How did we get here? Like, how did we get to this point as in Western civilization where abortion on demand is, is not just available, it's actually praised in many parts, even within the majority culture uh, of the United States? Well, if you'll remember when I was dealing with um, the cultural shifts of the United States, Western civilization, uh, a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, I said there was a major shift in the beginning of the 20th century within academia, within the, the elite, things like newspapers, publishing houses, um, news media, uh, universities. Uh, they all shifted away from biblical principles, but the culture did not follow. And, and for about a generation, maybe two generations, you had uh, a, a relatively moral society uh, pre-1960s um, and while it wasn't necessarily a Christian society, it doesn't necessarily mean there were more Christians than, than there are now, people's moral compass was based off of Judeo-Christian principles, okay? So while they may not have actually been Christians, and I contend many most weren't, um, they, they, from a moralistic standpoint, looked somewhat Christian, particularly as it related to things like um, sex, so the conversation of uh, procreation and marriage in the 1950s, even amongst people who were not Christians, looked pretty Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that people weren't having sex outside of marriage, that they weren't committing adultery, that they weren't having multiple sexual partners. It doesn't mean that, um, but the, they weren't proud of it. <laughs> They weren't bragging about it. It wasn't what you saw on, on television, for instance. And then, um, I've, I know I've done this before, but we're going to blame those of you that came of age in the 60s, right? Because those of you that came of age in the 60s were a part of a cultural revolution. And uh, with that, that cultural revolution that began in the 1960s has continued from the 60s to today. So we're now in really what is 60 years, 55, 60 years now of uh, a, a revolution within our culture that, that has left no stone unturned. There's nothing that's gone untouched. Uh, and one of the 
key components of that was the sexual revolution. And so, uh, and, and this didn't all happen overnight, but it began in the 1960s. It grew in the 70s and 80s with the proliferation of uh, pornography into the 90s with the eroding of traditional marriage, ultimately into the 2000s where we completely eliminated the idea of traditional marriage. You also had uh, in the mid to late 1900s, uh, no-fault divorce became uh, not, the, not something that was just happening on, uh, in liberal states, but it was things that was happening everywhere, right? And all of this finds its roots back in uh, that uh, cultural revolution that the United States, and not just the United States, but that Europe had experienced uh, maybe a generation before that, that Western civilization had gone from. So then what really is the worldview. What is the dominant worldview today in 2021 as it relates to life, as it relates to conception? Um, I'm going to deal actually with sexuality, homosexuality, and gender in another week. So I'm, I'm well, I'm, uh, some of these same causes are, are, going to, are going to be traced to that, but I'm, I'm saving that for another another week. But as, as we think about life itself and, and the uh, exaltation of abortion on demand, really you could categorize the dominant cultural worldview in our day today as narcissistic hedonism. Now, narcissism is a focus inward, right? It's somebody that only ever cares about themselves, someone that promotes themselves, right? Uh, hedonism is pleasure. So when you combine narcissism and hedonism, what do you get? That, that the prime goal of culture, particularly as it relates to pregnancy, is will this make me happy? And if it won't make me happy, then I want some way out of it. It's a focus on self-gratification that... I want what I want when I want it, right? And then, now again, this plays out in a myriad of fields where we could, I could be talking about materialism and consumerism right now. I mean, there's, there's any number of things that we could be talking about where we see this same kind of self, you know, the, the, the me generation, which then gave birth to the me, me, me generation, which I think now it's just everybody has pretty much embraced or at least dominant and within our culture is just embrace everybody's out for themselves. You know, it, it's all about doing what feels good for you. It's all about you making your choices and nobody gets to make your choices for you. So this narcissistic hedonism being now this primary focus within our culture allows one to put their needs above anyone else's. So I don't have to worry about how my decisions affect you as long as my decisions make me happy. And this is why the, the reality of ending a life in the womb is so acceptable to so many people because that person, that, that mother, is not expected to worry about the needs of the baby at that point. Because the needs of the baby in her womb are outweighed by her own. And her own needs aren't necessarily defined in the way that we would define them or the scriptures would define them. They're defined in the way the culture would define it. And here's what the culture has said. Does this make you happy? Does this, do you have the financial resources to do this? Do you want to be a mom right now or not? It's Listen, it's no, it's no surprise that the leading um, uh, seller of abortions in the United States right now is, is, is Planned Parenthood. And it's no mistake that they're called Planned Parenthood. That's what they're selling, right? They're selling the freedom to you live by your plans. That, that's, it's, it's in the name. This focus on self-gratification also allows us to escape any consequences for any reason, even just convenience, the majority of abortions uh, performed in the United States are acts of convenience. I just don't want to have a child right now. Now, that's not every case. There are other cases um, where, where women are absolutely torn over this, over this decision. Uh, but 
we're, we're told that everybody who is, is torn over. And it's just, you know, they're, they're making this decision because there's no other choice for them. But in truth, that's not, that's not what the statistics show at all. That, that, that the majority of abortions in America today are, are just for convenience. I, 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 uh, I don't want to be pregnant, and so I am going to put my needs over anyone else. And the ultimate here, the ultimate goal is personal choice. That is the ultimate moral imperative of narcissistic hedonism, is I get to choose from me. You don't get to choose from me. Uh, society doesn't get to choose from me. Certainly a church isn't going to get to choose from me. I get to choose from me, and you don't get to tell me we We've all heard this ad nauseum, right? My body, my choice. That, that, has become, uh, that has become the commandment of this movement. I get to do what I want to do. Now, that is the way the world has pitched uh, or the world has embraced abortion and has sold it to so many. And now not just, not, listen, this is not just one generation that's bought into this. This has been a movement. I mean, abortion has been, been legal in the United States since 1973. We're going on 50 years now of this in, in the United States. It, it's it's multi-generational uh, embracing of this idea that you just need to do what's going to be best uh, for you. Now, I recognize there are parents of young people in the room, and, sh- and me being one of them. I think it's important for us to recognize that, that our kids are inundated with this as if it is gospel truth. And even if you choose some sort of alternative education source for your children, like my family has chosen to do, um, you still can't you, you, you're not going to be able to shield them from everything, which by the way, isn't the goal of, I would think most homeschool families, I know ours does. It's not our goal for homeschooling is not to shield our kids like that. That's not why we do it. But even if it was like, even if that is the goal and occasionally that is the goal for some people, they just want to shield them from everything in the world. If that's the goal, you'll, you'll ultimately fail because something's going to get in. And this, this idea of you do what's right for you is so prevalent in our world. I mean, all you had to do is watch the Super Bowl and every commercial is about pleasure and you, you know, doing, what, doing what's right for you. So this is, this is the state of our culture. So what's the Bible say? Does the Bible affirm that? And I think this is the question we have to ask every time is if that's what our culture is saying, what, what, is the, what does the Bible actually say? And how's that, how's that different? In some ways, in some subjects that we're going to see, actually, uh, th- there are going to be some similarities. There's going to be some crossovers. The truth of it is with this subject, there's, there's not going to be. The Bible says that all human beings have dignity. That, that we must, according to scripture, recognize the dignity of all human beings. This includes those who are, un, who are not yet born because the unborn are human beings. In Psalm 139, we read, for you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, and your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for, for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now, the psalmist is affirming a lot here for us. As it relates to this subject, uh, it's, it's important for us to see. The, the psalmist is, now you got to remember, this is, this is written in antiquity, we, we've all become just, it's become commonplace to see ultrasounds. I'm 40. I don't ever remember life before ultrasound. Some of you do though. Um, I can't imagine what it would have been like that first time. I mean, particularly if you were, you know, teenage years or beyond, if you were an adult and the first time you see an ultrasound, like that had to just be the most miraculous thing you could ever think of. Because for millennia before that, nobody really knew. It was like we knew what was going on, but you didn't really know what was going on. And now all of a sudden you can look in and see it. Now I do remember when they went from regular 2D ultrasounds, you know, the one that looked like a Doppler weather picture to now the 3D ones, you know, 
Um, that was, that was brand new when Brody was born. We got one because he was premature and they did one, they did one, they brought, brought us into this 3d room. And it was this whole new thing and, and did this because they wanted to check some stuff. And I was just like blown away at, at this, at this technology. This is what we're, what we're getting to, what we're getting to see. So this is the psalmist like painting that ultrasound picture for us. What? 3000 years before there was an ultrasound machine. So it's impossible to read this text of scripture and not recognize the dignity that we should see within every human life that God has created. That God is the one who is knitting us, who knit us together in our mother's womb. He is the one who is currently right now knitting human beings together from the moment of conception within their mother's womb. Ultimately, all human beings are image bearers of God, no matter who they are. Now, Anytime we deal with a subject that, that deals with humanity, I'm going to come back to this idea. So abortion isn't the only one where we're going to think about uh, subjects that concern people. And, and one of the primary points that we always must go back to, and I said this, I think it was week two when we were defining what a biblical worldview is. It begins with a right understanding of creation, Right. And a right understanding of creation demands that we have a right understanding of the place of human beings in creation. Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That every human being on this planet, regardless of age, born, unborn, regardless of race, regardless of creed, regardless of... Uh, even mental ability, disability, however you want to think about it, every human being is created in the image of God. This is where we draw our dignity from. This is why the psalmist writes such beautiful words about being, being formed in these inward parts, right? And, and that God is the one doing this work. It's because we are special in the place of creation. We are all image bearers of God. There, there is, there is the, uh, I, I think one of the uh, best examples of this, right, is, is the coins that so many of us have in our pockets. Now, we put, we put dead people on coins most often. Now we're putting like national parks and bats and all kinds of stuff on coins. We, we typically put like dead presidents um, but in ancient times, that's not what they did. They, they put the current ruler, right? So in, in Rome, for instance, uh, every time a new Caesar would come about, you know what they would do, right? They'd start striking new coins. Because here's what it was saying. By putting his image on that coin, it's saying who owns it, all right? And that's what God is doing. God, God has put his image on us because this is his creation and we are the crowning work of it. And he has passed on attributes of himself into us. He's he's given us responsibility that the rest of creation doesn't have because we are his image bearers. So dignity is required there. Now just fast forward. So I read Genesis 1, creation account, right? Adam and Eve placed in the garden. They live there for an undetermined period of time. They do what God has instructed them to do. Ultimately, they're tempted and they fall. And then you you get to Genesis 3.15 where God is pronouncing curse on man and woman and uh, the serpent. And listen to what he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And you say, what in the world does that have to do with dignity? What does that have to do with, with, you know, with, with uh, the image of God and, and, and abortion? Well, the first sin causes death to enter the human race. They're removed from the presence of God, but a promise is made. And here's how that, here's all Adam and Eve need to know. For us to believe in that promise, for that promise to eventually happen, what do they have to do? They gotta have children. (laughs) That's the one thing Adam and Eve need to do coming out of the garden. They need to have children. God had already told them in Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, fish and sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the every living thing that moves on the earth. Do what I've told you to do. So there was an expectation from God in the beginning that even the gospel would be brought about through the birth of a child, that, that there is something special that is happening here. So 
the scriptures demand for us to recognize that there is dignity in all life. Now, I'm not, you know, because we only have like six weeks for me to keep doing this, tied to this issue. So I wanted to mention this quickly tied to this issue. Uh, when, when we talk about life, we're not only talking about preborn life. Um, I, I do believe we are, we are, we're already seeing this in some places, um, but we are running headlong into this same discussion, but at the end of life. At what point does someone, right, if a, if a fetus is inconvenienced and can be killed, at what point does an elderly person or a disabled person become inconvenienced? And such an inconvenience that those he, is, he or she is an inconvenience to, or even to themselves, which is, which is where it's begun. And it's begun that way in some states now where somebody can choose medically to end, end their own life, Right? Well, folks, that's only one step away from somebody being able to choose that for them, right? Even possibly against their will. So we have to recognize that, that life, all human life has dignity because it is created in the image of God. So this is not, this subject primarily is about the unborn because that's what I had time to talk about today. But we need to recognize that this, is, this has consequences on both ends of the timeline, now, there would be some who would say, it's antiquated, right? Like you're appealing to a creation account from scripture. You're appealing to some poetry from, um, you know, a thousand years even before Jesus. Why, why, would we, why would we think that that is still applicable for us today? Why, why does that, why should we consider that as we think about the subject of a worldview concerning abortion. Well, not only does the scriptures, I think, clearly speak about the dignity of humanity, but this is, a, this is an area, and I think Christians need to, we need to say this louder. This is an area where science is definitively on our side. And the more we learn, right? I've already talked about the ultrasound, you know, creation of the ultrasound, what, this was the late 70s, early 80s. Um, that we started seeing that um, in in pregnancies, and then um, and then as that has progressed into 3D and 4D ultrasounds, and all of these things that that we know now that that we didn't know before, uh, the more science tells us about what's happening in the womb, the more we should say this is demanding that we stop killing these children. We know now that a heart starts beating at four weeks. We know that. Within the first eight weeks, arms, legs, fingers, toes, eyes are formed. Babies at eight weeks old can hiccup. I mean, if that's not something humans do, I don't know what is. Between eight and 10 weeks, we're, and this is, this is relatively new studies, but this is pretty much broadly accepted in the scientific community. Between eight and 10 weeks, the ability to experience pain due to a properly developed neural structure is present within a fetus, but eight to 10 weeks. So we're not talking about very long at all. Maybe even before a woman knows she is pregnant, the child within her has 10 fingers, 10 toes, arms, legs, heads, eyeballs, eyelids are starting to form right around week nine. You can actually see the color in their eyes. And that, that child can feel pain. So, so we, like, we have the science <laughs> in, in this way. Now, you know, some, so often the church is, is the one being accused of not listening to science. Well, in this case, and there's actually two things I'm going to talk about this in, in this semester where I think the science is just like firmly in our camp. These are actual human beings, small as they may be, living with inside their mother's womb. So the science is on our side, but also the historical opinion of the church is on our side. Now, that doesn't always matter. There are times that the church has been wrong. Even within more modern times, when, when, when abortion, particularly in the late 60s and the early 70s, we ended up with this intersection, right? Abortion was becoming legal, and the primary thrust of the American church was moving towards theological liberalism. And those things ended up passing each other right around the time that Roe versus Wade uh, was instituted. And you ended up with even 
what are still now considered conservative denominations who were having to think about this for the first time. People just didn't talk about it. They didn't think about it, right? And so now you, you are because there was a Supreme Court case. There's actually two Supreme Court cases and you've got, you've got now we've got to have actual opinions on this. And, and you had people early, like in the 1970s, you, you, had, you had people that may have been considered fairly conservative Christians, at least arguing that some abortion would be acceptable. Abortion up to a certain point in the pregnancy um, or in certain circumstances uh, would, would be acceptable. Now, as the science has grown and as we've continued to uh, refine that position, here's what we say. Th- that's, that's just not a biblically acceptable position. Um, so, but when you go further back than that, and when I say further back, I mean almost Bible times, first century, the, the, the guy who became what the Roman Catholics say was, was the um, first bishop in Rome after Peter, was a guy named Clement, all right? And Clement addressed, because there was, there was kind of a live abortion culture within Rome, and he wrote and called it murder. I mean, it was just, he didn't use the English word, obviously. Um, but he called it murder. There was a second century early church father that said this, the fetus in the womb is a living being and therefore the object of God's care. So the idea that, that a child still in the mother's womb is, an, is a living being that has created in the image of God that demands dignity and demands care and that we should stand up for and defend is a position the church has held for 2,000 years. So this isn't a new thing. This isn't a response to Roe versus Wade, okay? This is something the church has believed for a very long time. Another biblical argument here, so much, much of the biblical argument is, is around who that person is. But when you think about what the worldview argument is, right? The worldview argument is, is that narcissistic hedonism. I, I'm thinking about me. I want to enjoy my life. And so if this is an inconvenience to me, then I'm going to do away with it. But ultimately, that's what that's saying is I don't want to experience consequences. I don't want to have to I don't want to have to deal with the fact that I'm, I got pregnant and, and, or I don't have to deal with it. And let's not, I'm, let's not put all the, the weight on women here. Um, there are a lot of women who have abortions because husbands and boyfriends pressure them into doing it. And so uh, a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, they say, oh, we just, we can't afford it right now. It's not convenient time. We don't want to do this right now. They get a test back. We're seeing this more and more um, uh, that, that they get a test back and, and that test comes and tells them that there's some kind of deformity, there's some kind of um, mental disability. And so they decide, hey, we, we're, not gonna, we're, not, we're not equipped to deal with that. It's gonna inconvenience our life, right? But listen to Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, its way is death. The way that seems right to man right now as our culture is limit consequences as much as I can. Make myself as happy as I can possibly be. I don't want to have to face the, the consequences of, of my own actions. But ultimately, that is going to lead to death. That, that's the ultimate outcome. And this is, this is where our culture is. And so the Bible, I think, not only speaks about the, the dignity of human life, but the Bible speaks about the necessity of us to not do things our way just because that's what we want to do. And it makes us make hard decisions sometimes, but hard decisions are often the right decision because they're the biblical decision. All right, so that's how the world's approaching it, how the Bible approaches it. How does, the, how does the gospel interact with the, with the issue of life? Let me give you a few things. First, the gospel changes us from self-pleasers to God-pleasers. I mean, Romans 8, 8 says, they're, 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 uh, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So it's impossible outside of Jesus Christ to be able to please. It's, it's impossible outside a, a real response to the gospel where a heart is turned from stone to flesh that a person has the ability to please God. But when that happens, 
one of the transformations that happens in our lives is that we go from being those who are only focused on ourselves to now those who are focused on what God has told us to do. Now, for many, most, maybe all, but likely most is the right word, both for people in the room and those watching us online, you, you've, not, you've not had an abortion. I know that there are people that um, fill church pews every day that have. There are certainly probably people maybe even watching online right now that has. And here's what I, I think is important for us to note. That there's none of us in here that, that can read a verse like that. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And think that somehow our fleshly choices we're better because we didn't do this one thing or that one thing than someone else's fleshly choices, all right? And the gospel has the ability to take any self-pleaser and turn them into a God-pleaser. I know this because it did it for me. (laughs) And if the gospel can do that for me, the gospel can do that for anyone. So, we, we go from being people who are looking out for our own interests ultimately to people that want to do what God wants us to do. And what does God want us to do? Jesus says the law and the prophets are all summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like up to it. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? And then Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So seeking, the, seeking to our transit, tra- being transformed from being a, Self-pleaser to being a God-pleaser means that I'm no, longer, I'm, I'm no longer a narcissist, right? I'm no longer thinking about my needs. I'm thinking about someone else's, particularly if that person happens to be in a mother's womb. Number two, the gospel gives us a new family. Um, there, there are numerous uh, women, and I'm grateful for, for these testimonies, who, who have um, had the courage to share about um, decisions they've made to abort children, how that's affected them um, greatly, how that's affected them emotionally and mentally. Um, and then after coming to faith in Christ, have been able to use that as an encouragement uh, towards others. But there's this great sense of loss. When, when you listen to stories like that, there's this great sense of loss that you hear in, in every one of those. They know, they recognize my family's not complete. But this is the promise of the gospel, right? That the gospel brings us into family. Romans 8, again, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery, fall back into fear, but their spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if his children, then heirs, heirs of, the gospel, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may all also be glorified in him. The gospel begins to heal that wound, that wound. The the gospel begins to make that family whole because it brings us into that family. Third, the gospel doesn't remove temporal consequences, but it does give us a new future. There, there are women who, through, through ministries like Crisis Pregnancy Centers, who, make, who hear the truth of the gospel, they come to faith in Christ, they make the difficult decision then to, to sacrifice self um, for the sake of this child that's growing in them. And you know what? It's still not easy for them. It's not easy for them. Um, those thoughts that they were having early on about how difficult this is going to be are still there. And many of them actually prove true. And sometimes it's even more difficult than they thought it was going to be. But the gospel doesn't promise to any of us, for any of our, the consequences of our actions, that those things would be removed in this life. But there is a great future ahead, eternal life that the gospel promises. So if you do happen to be in here, if you're watching with us online and you have experienced abortion in your past, understand this. We, we don't condemn you. Um, I don't condemn you. I would hope our church wouldn't. I don't believe scripture does. Any, any beyond what the scripture has already said to be true about all who are sinful. But the Bible offers, the, the gospel offers 
the opportunity to come into a new family, the opportunity to have hope and a future, the opportunity to have people around you to, to help you. So if this does happen to be watched by someone who's considering abortion or has experience in the past, listen, there's a future from that. It's in the gospel of Jesus. Now for the church, what should our action be? Like what should we actually do? So we've recognized our, the, the cultural worldview and the biblical worldview do not align. So what should we do? Let me give you five things. Number one, show God's love towards all people at all times. Uh, that's one of our core values. It's actually a part of the core value that deals with the unborn. We will show God's love to all people at all times while giving special support to the orphan, the widow, and the unborn. This is something that is demanded in the scripture of us. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? And who is my neighbor? <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that what Jesus would ask? Who's my neighbor? Well, who's your neighbor? Every, anybody you come in contact with is your neighbor. I really think the, the church, uh, the, the mid-century, mid-20th century church, um, when, when we were seeing this transition, we were seeing this revolution, this cultural revolution take place in our world, I think the church hurt us. Now listen, that, that's not to, again, condemn people who were leading churches back then. Some of you are old enough to be alive and were part of churches back then. I think the church does good things and bad things at every stage of, of history, okay? One of the bad things I think the church did then was the church embraced the idea that we should shun people, particularly when they have sinned sexually. That, that girls who get pregnant out of wedlock need to be sent off, right? That they, they don't need to be, you know, I mean, and, and this, this prevailed not just through the mid-20th century, but this has prevailed in many places and in many churches and in many ways of thinking, even through today, that, that we, we need to cast aside and marginalize people. And all that does is drive them to make a decision like this. But the Bible doesn't call us to do that, right? The Bible calls us to show love to all people, God's love towards all people at all times. Um, which is one of the things that I'm so proud of in this church, as I pastor this church, is you don't question why we would have baby showers for single moms at this church. Because you, you get that. At least I hope you don't. If you do question it, you don't question it to me. <laughs> Nobody's ever asked me that question. Nobody's ever come to me and said, why would we do that, right? Shouldn't we, you know, shouldn't we... Just tell them they were wrong and, and now go deal with their consequences. You don't, ever, you don't ever ask that. I believe you don't ask that because you recognize we're not endorsing the activity that, you know, that got them there. And by the way, not every mom that we host wedding uh, baby showers for like that is even a single mom. Sometimes they're married and they'll be in a situation where they're just really questioning whether they want to have a children. Maybe they're way past that point where they were wanting to have children. Who, who knows what the situation is? But sometimes they're single moms. And listen, we treat them both exactly the same. We, we want to bless them and show love to them. That's my second thing is, is not only we want to show, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, show God's love towards all people at all times. But we have to recognize that that practically matters. And so we have to support expecting mothers, even under less than ideal circumstances. I think our Crisis Pregnancy Center does such a good job of that, and it provides opportunities for us as a congregation uh, to do that. And it, it gives us the ability to show that love to people who um, the church at one point may not have, may not have chosen to do, do so. Uh, and I think that just goes such a long way. And so we're, we're talking about this new ministry, this mission's great expectation where we're going to have a team of people that's already built. And they're going to like, not, we're not just talking about baby showers at this point. We're talking about like weekly meals and Bible study and like living in life with these people, not only through the pregnancy, but into the birth of the child. I'm really excited about that next step of how we're going to do this with, with expecting mothers.
Number three, goes beyond just children in the womb, but we have to be a church. The church has to remember this is all under the church's actions. We have to be people who support foster care, orphan care, adoptee families. You, you recognize one of the, the greatest accusations from the world about the church is that we only care about fetuses. We only care about children in the womb. And anytime somebody says that, that I know, I don't get in like, I don't argue on social media. That, that, that gets you nowhere, right? Um, there's a lot better things I can do with my time than argue with that. But I, I mean, I have friends that aren't Christians. I have people in my life that, that are pro-abortion that think all churches care about. And so when I see them say something like that, sometimes they say things directly like that to me when I'm, maybe I've preached a sermon, maybe somebody may respond. Somebody may have already responded on our Facebook page. Uh, with, with something like this. And here's what I love being able to say. Let me tell you all the ways that our church has helped moms and not only helped moms who are pregnant, but have come alongside people who, who have been in very difficult situations. We do that through our foster care ministry. We do that through families in our churches, uh, in our church and other churches who, who have adopted. We, we care for these people together. The more we care for families, mothers, children, both in the womb and out of the womb, the more we have the moral high ground to be able to, and look, we have the high ground because of the scripture, but we gain an audience with people when we're able to say, no, 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 we're not just out there saying don't have an abortion. Let me tell you the things that we're also doing. Let me show you how we're helping people. And I just really think that matters as we seek to influence our culture to show them that this isn't just a matter of don't do something. And, and having ministries that care for children and families after they have uh, the child uh, is, is equally important in this fight. Number four. Now, I do think this is going to challenge some of you. And that's one of my goals this time. I really just want us to get us thinking sometimes. Number four, consider how statements I make, statements you make, and the support I give to certain political policies encourage or discourage abortion. The subject may not be abortion at all, right? But if you are in time, and I'm, I'm there are going to be times in these weeks that I'm going to get a little political, okay? I don't endorse political candidates. we got people maybe watching the internet. I don't endorse political candidates. But occasionally I have to wade into the waters of politics because sometimes these things overlap, okay? So I just want to say something that may be challenging for a few of us. If, if you completely reject the idea of social safety net programs and all you ever do is criticize you know, welfare, for instance, or um, you know, WIC, the program for you know, women and, and infants, you know, that gives them free food. And like, if, if all you ever do is criticize those things, think the government ought to strip those things to the bare bones, we at least need to ask the question, is my position on that going to drive people to have an abortion? Now, I'm not, again, this is a, this is, these are multifaceted ideas and I recognize that. And, and there's a, there's a lot that goes into a lot of these discussions. So, so I'm not telling you that you need to completely, you know, radically change your opinion on something, but I do think the way we, even the way we say things and the way that we show our support for things may have a, may have an impact here. Here's, you know, fully agreed upon. Because you can just see it. Again, I began this by saying I'm not quoting a lot of statistics. But it is, it is undeniable that when economic security rises in a culture, the abortion rate drops. So we'll never get it to zero by doing what the government's doing right now, just trying to fill everybody's pockets over and over again. Okay, I recognize that. But we, we do need to recognize that that does help. That things like economic security for a mother, who maybe a single mom who says, I don't know how I would even pay to put diapers on this child or feed this child. Those kind of safety nets help 
to reduce the abortion rate in our country. So I do think that is at least a question worth asking for some of us is, are the political stances that I've taken or even actually publicly taken and the things that maybe I argue for and, and always want to always uh, say, how does that affect this specific subject? Number five, I do believe we as, as individual Christians and even the church, and this, there, there are very few things that I think the church should get political over. This is one of them. Should support laws that respect the dignity of every human life. I... I, I I don't believe we change culture through the law. And there are going to be other times in the coming weeks where I'm going to deal with the law a little bit. And I am actually not, and you may be a little bit more than me, and I think this is certainly a third order issue, something that we could debate. I, I'm not a big legislate morality guy beyond like solid moral law of God, like do not kill, do not steal kind of principles. But if we recognize that the child in the womb is a human being deserving of dignity, then this is a do not kill situation. And with that, I don't believe we can have a biblical worldview of abortion and say what many of our politicians currently say. And that is, I am personally opposed to abortion, but I believe it should be legal in the United States. I don't think that, listen, there are things that I am personally opposed to that I do believe should be legal, okay? Um, but I don't believe, I don't believe you can have a biblical worldview. Notice I didn't say, I don't believe you can be a Christian, okay? I'm, I really struggle when we question the, the, the core Christianity of somebody, but I will say, I do not believe you can be operating under a biblical worldview, if you can somehow compartmentalize those two things. So while I don't believe the church should be this huge political mechanism out there lobbying for everything under the sun, I, I do think as it relates to life and, and all matters of life. And again, I, I think that what's, what's going to happen at the end of the timeline, uh, th those debates are coming too. And I think the church needs to lead in that and argue for the dignity of every human life from conception to natural death because we're convinced by Scripture that every life matters. Um, and, and so I don't think we're able to make that distinction and say, well, I wouldn't do it, but I'm okay if, with allowing somebody else to do it. I, I, I think the Bible speaks too clearly on... Um, human dignity and the, the, the prohibition of killing and taking innocent life for, for, us to, for us to take that position. So probably what I've done there is challenged both political parties a little bit in the last two points, which is always something I like to do. So uh, I want to pray for us and we can be done. Father, we thank you that you, um, you help us to know uh, right from wrong, good from evil. We pray for those who are defending life in our culture today. Um, we ask you, God, to, um, to strengthen them, uh, to strengthen the ministries in our church that are continuing to do that. And we, would, you, would you help moms and dads? And they're making these tough decisions. Young girls, uh, women beyond what they thought were going to be their childbearing years, everything in between. God, we ask that you would remove the scourge of abortion from our land. Only you can do that. Would you help us to be advocates for life, we pray, from conception to the grave. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I got two minutes left, and I, as I was praying, I remembered I wanted to say something. I forgot to put it in my notes. And if I don't put it in my notes, I don't say it most often. Um, Inevitably, somebody's going to ask this question, all right? Well, what about the exceptions? Because you always hear about the exceptions, right? Um, uh, rape, incest, life of the mother, those are the big ones. Uh, sometimes there are some other, other exceptions, um, you know, uh, health of the child. Maybe the child won't live past, you know, an hour or two or, or, or whatever. Um, things get a little more difficult as we progress into some of these uh, Subjects, but if you want to know for me where I come down on this is 
we should support policies that defend life, period. Um, and I recognize that is a really tough conversation uh, in, in the, um, uh, if, if we're, we're dealing particularly with something like rape or incest, I, I recognize that would be a very difficult conversation. Um, but I, I, I still can't get past the idea that this is an innocent human being created in the image of God. In, in this womb, okay. the the big the big um, uh, straw man is life of the mother. Listen, abortions are not done to save a mother's life, okay. Unless you're talking about early on and it is it's like a tubal pregnancy or something like that, which would spontaneously abort or rupture and has to be dealt with. If this is a normal pregnancy in, it, in its course, um, my, I, I think our position should be deliver the child. If you, if you have to deliver the child, and this is from people who had to deliver a child at 28 weeks, and we're told we had a 50-50 shot, okay? I, I'll ne- I, to the day I die, I'll remember standing in that room and a doctor telling me I've got a 50-50 shot. And um, my wife was going to die, so we allowed them to induce labor. Unfortunately, we got a healthy 15-year-old upstairs right now. Um, but we gave him a shot at life. We gave them both a shot at life. Okay, So I do think I have a little bit of integrity here with this subject and say, I think we ought to look for the best way to preserve life in every circumstance uh, that, that we can. Recognizing that, that in the margins of this thing, the conversations become a little more difficult but I still don't think it changes the math of innocent human life created in the image of God in someone's, in someone's womb, um, in a mother's womb, okay? So I wanted to answer that because I know some, some people would, would likely ask it. So now I've used all my time. Thank you for those that joined us online. We hope to see you back next week. Thank you for those that were in here. Recognize a difficult subject. If you want to talk to me, ask me questions privately, you can do that. Next week, I'll take questions beforehand and maybe there'll be some. Thanks for being here.